Well, we've been looking at this series like an extended play album. And in the extended play album, a lot of times you're going to have your greatest hits and you're going to have your deeper cuts. And we're going to try over the course of the series to do both. When it comes to the greatest hits tracks, Genesis contains some of the most iconic accounts, narratives, content, as you're going to find not just in the Bible, but in all of literature. Adam and Eve is in there. Creation and fall is in there. Noah and the ark is in there. Abraham and the covenant is in there. The origin stories for the 12 tribes of Israel, it's in there. Even the source material for Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Anyone seen that one? All right, that's in there too. Those are just some of the greatest hits you're going to find in Genesis. And we're also going to spend time with some of the deeper cuts too. You know, as you read through Genesis, you're going to come across some stuff that makes you go, huh. Here's just a couple examples of that, things you find. Examples of the weight. What? Passages in Genesis. A talking serpent. We saw that already in Genesis 3. You've got 900-year-old people in Genesis 5. What do you do with that? You have this account of a guy named Enoch, who the Bible says walked with God and then was no more because God took him. What do you do with that? We have Melchizedek, the mysterious, and we have Jacob wrestling with God. Genesis contains a whole lot of perplexing material, as we should expect it to. If you take something that was written thousands of years ago in a language that we don't speak to a very different audience, we should expect that some of this is going to be difficult to understand. Well, today we're going to explore a section of the Bible that I've never studied before. I've never studied this one before, and it's Genesis 14. I'm starting with verse 17. So if you have your Bibles and want to open to that section, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. We keep a, section, a stack of those on that table right there in the back. We'd love for you to take one home as a gift to you. Once, I, once you find it, I want to invite you to take out your green insert and write this down. We're going to be looking at a character named Melchizedek today. We're going to look at his narrative, and we're going to be pulling four takeaways out of it. The first takeaway is this. There is surprising depth in passages that are easy to dismiss. The Holy Spirit did not inspire any filler. Any filler. As you go through the Bible, you're going to have some small things that are going to make you go, what? You're going to find some whole sections that are going to make you go, what? You're going to see sections that are repeated, and you're going to go, why? There's all of this stuff. And every time, every time I've tried to dig deeper into one of those sections, I've had a discovery. And I realize, okay, it's in there for a reason. And I specifically chose Melchizedek for today on purpose. Because I know enough about Melchizedek to know that there's a lot of interesting things surrounding that passage. There's tie-ins between what we're going to read in Genesis and the Psalms, which then link to the book of Hebrews. There's all kinds of history in there. There's all kinds of wordplay. And the reason that I picked this for this day is it'd be really easy to reduce God's word today to Bible trivia. And I don't want to do that. And I knew that I wouldn't do that when I'm just two days removed from being in Juarez. Right? I knew that I would not be content to just go, oh, isn't that neat? Look how this all ties together, right? Which we sometimes can fall into that trap. We just, as teachers or preachers of God's word, we sometimes can just get something that is God's word and we can turn it into Bible trivia. And in a world 
where millions of people are dying from preventable causes, in a world where millions of people are being sold like property, in a world where the effects of the fall are felt right here in our lives and the lives of those we love and our friends and our family and our neighbors, who's got time for Bible trivia, right? And I knew that coming off of the Juarez trip, I'd be acutely aware of that and certainly am. As I talked to um, one of the folks at the home, the, the principal, Sonia, I was talking to her and they had done a home visit, visit right before I got down there with one of the, the families of, of some of the kids who are at the home. And uh, she, they, they arrived there and they found that mom wasn't there because she was at work. And that's often how it is. You, you, you have to work and so she's at work and they don't have anyone else they can have the kids with. So a 10-year-old was in charge of the house if you can call it that, a shack that didn't even have a door. The 10-year-old's in charge of all the kids ranging from infant up. How vulnerable is that kid and that family? When this is the world we live in, we shouldn't have time for trivia, right? So let's look at this and let's see what God has to say to us in and through it. Does that sound good? All right, that's what we're going to try to do today. All right, so here we go. Here we go. And let's begin with a little context of what we're about to read because everything you find in the Bible has a context. So we're going to be reading from chapter 14, starting about the middle of it. In chapter 12, God called a man named Abram to follow him. In chapter 13, Abram and his nephew Lot arrived in a new land. They're in a new land. And Lot settles near a city named Sodom. Then in chapter 14, as it opens, five kings go to war against four kings. The four kings are victorious, and Lot happens to be on the losing side. And so Lot is carried off into captivity with those four kings. Well, when Abram heard that Lot was taken captive, the word says that Abram gathered 318 of his, quote, trained men. And that word that's translated as trained men is found nowhere else in the Bible. And so the scholars, as they're doing their best to piece together what that word means, they translate it as trained men. And I guess you could think of it roughly like these are Abram's Navy SEALs. These are people who have been trained for combat. And one of the reasons they deduce that is out of what happens. Abram and his trained men tracked the four kings more than 100 miles. They divided into two squads, all this is in the Bible, and they attacked and then defeated the four kings at night. They had this great victory, they rescued Lot, they rescued all the other people who had been taken into captivity, and they recovered all the property that had been stolen. That's what happens right before what we're about to read. So, let's take a look, Genesis 14, verses 17 through 18. After his return, after Abram's return from the defeat of King Cheddar Lover or something like that. Um, and the kings that were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the king's valley. And Melchizedek, I did work on pronouncing that one. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. All right, let's hit pause. Let's talk about that. Now, there's a lot of interesting elements in, packed into this brief passage. And these details matter. The word of God says the king of Sodom was one of the ones that came out to greet Abram after victory. Woo, you go, Abram. Good job. But there was another character there too, a character named Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king 
of righteousness. King of righteousness. He's the king, it says, of Salem. But if we cross-reference what we just read with Psalm 76, 2, we see that Salem is the same as Jerusalem. So he's the king of Jerusalem before Jerusalem was the capital of the Hebrew people, who aren't even really called that much yet by now. But here, here. He's also a priest, it says. He's also a priest. Well, right before this passage, in Hebrews 14, 13, Abram is referred to Abram of the Hebrews. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the first time that the name Hebrews is ascribed to the people of God. So right before this, for the first time, the Hebrew people are called the Hebrews. The appearance of the name Hebrews right here seems too interesting when it comes to timing to dismiss as coincidental. Among the Hebrews, who would later make Jerusalem their capital, there was a clear separation between kings and priests. Melchizedek is both, king and priest. In the Hebrew people, in the future that was ahead, the kings would rule the throne and the priests would serve in the temple. Kings would come from the line of Judah. Priests would come from the line of Levi. And you've got Melchizedek, who's both king and priest. Not only that, but Melchizedek recognizes what happened in that victory, that it was God who granted that victory. He recognizes the true nature of what just happened, and then he blesses Abram. He blesses him. And here's the blessing, Genesis 14, uh, 19 through 20. And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. All right, let's unpack this a little bit. Melchizedek blessed Abram. And Abram responded to Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of everything. Which brings us then to the second of our four takeaways. Melchizedek, the priest slash king, he got it. He got it. He was able to understand what was going on. Melchizedek recognized that Abram's victory came from God. The king of Sodom, however, saw things differently. Saw things differently. Picking up where we uh, left off. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and I would not, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Okay, so let's put this into context here. Abram had just demonstrated he can compete with the big boys. His trained men took on four kings. And with God's help, they won. But rather than taking credit for the victory and then aligning with the king of Sodom, Abram rebukes that king. And there's a place to write this in your notes. The king of Sodom didn't get it. He didn't get it. The king of Sodom didn't see God's hand in what was happening. And Abram rejected the worldly rewards that the king of Sodom offered. Now, if we had more time... and encourage you to do this on your own. Look what happens with Lot. Lot stays entangled in the web of Sodom. Rather than saying, look, Abraham's going a different direction. This didn't work out so well with me to be under the rule of the king of Sodom. I'm going with Abraham. Lot stays in Sodom 
and read what happens in Genesis 19. Abram has to come back and rescue Lot once again as God's judgment is poured out on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The way that the king of Sodom responds to Abram foreshadows Sodom's destruction. In contrast, Melchizedek, who he is and his life foreshadows something else that brings us to number four. Melchizedek foreshadows the who? The Messiah. As the big story of God unfolds in the Old Testament, prophecies begin to come forth about a Messiah, about the anointed one who's going to save and lead God's people. And there's some, some scholars that believe that Melchizedek was the Messiah in disguise. I'm not sure you can go that far, but there's no doubt in my mind that Melchizedek, at the very least, he foreshadows the anointed one, the Messiah who was to come. As I spent more time in this passage, I began to notice things that I never noticed before, like all the Holy Communion imagery that's happening in this. You've got Melchizedek, the, quote, king of righteousness, who brings out bread and wine, which was at that time a sign of peace, and it was connected to a great victory that God had won. And Melchizedek does this, in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Does any of that sound like the institution of Lord's Supper? But that's not where the Bible goes. The Bible doesn't say, ooh, look, that was neat. There's much more here than that. And that brings us to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, a psalm that I believe was written by David. Psalm 110 is one of the most commonly quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. The psalms appear in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Psalms are quoted quite a bit. And Psalm 110, out of all of them, is one that's quoted, boy, right up there towards the top. And look what it says in Psalm 110, in verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of who? Kids, I just made, wanted to make you say that. <laughs> so I'm not the only one having to say these hard words, right? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As the years passed, as the years passed, people wanted their name associated with Melchizedek. In some circles, Melchizedek was even considered to be a bigger deal than Abram, who God later changed Abram's name to Abraham. And Abraham's a big deal. Abraham, Muslims can trace their roots back to who? To Abraham. The Jews trace their roots back to Abraham. Christians trace our roots back to Abraham. Is Abraham a big deal? Yes. And early on, people began to put Melchizedek up as a bigger deal than Abraham. He was thought of as even greater because it was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham before Abraham had kids who had kids who had kids who had kids. It was Abraham through whom the Hebrew priests and kings came from. And before that happened, Melchizedek was blessing Abram. In the centuries that followed, Melchizedek became a bigger and bigger deal to the Jewish people. I came across this quote during my prep. The Hasmoneans, seeking to establish a messianic dimension to the rule, justify their priestly royal prerogatives by reference to Melchizedek. 
This practice was continued by the Sadducees. In other words, if you wanted to be a somebody, you wanted your name associated with Melchizedek. If you were to travel to, to the Israel today, and if you were able to get access to the Dead Sea Scrolls, you would see some of those authors wrestling with who is this one who is greater than Abraham. You could actually see it for your, yourself. One of the Dead Sea Scrolls runs with a theory that Melchizedek is actually an angel, the angel Michael in disguise. There was all kinds of speculation. But at the end of the day, what they wanted, they wanted to be associated with this great and mysterious figure. Well, the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews knows what to do with Melchizedek. And many of you were here a couple lengths ago when we walked through the book of Hebrews. Oh, it's so much in there too. The author of the book of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, references Psalm 110, verse 4, a lot. A lot. When I say a lot, take a look at this. These are just the ones that I could find quickly, where either it's a direct quote from Psalm 110 or pretty close. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That wording, either exactly or close, can be found in Hebrews 5.6, Hebrews 5.10, Hebrews 6.20, Hebrews 7.11, Hebrews 7.15, and Hebrews 7.17. And the book of Hebrews doesn't stop there with just quoting this. N.T. Wright writes this about the book of Hebrews. He says, the word better, or at least the Greek word which it translates, occurs more times in Hebrews than in the whole rest of the New Testament put together. That tells us something about the way the writer thinks. He is constantly contrasting not something bad with something good, but something good with something what? Better. The author of Hebrews devotes the first 10 chapters of his letter to making the case that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus the Messiah is the greatest of all. For the first two chapters, there's this, this theme of Jesus is greater than the angels. And then in chapter 3, the author makes the case, Jesus is greater than Moses. And then from 4 all the way to chapter 10, there's this theme that appears in and out that Jesus is greater than any priest that has ever come before, including, but not limited to, Melchizedek. There's a place to write this down in your notes. The Messiah is greater than Melchizedek. The Messiah is greater than Melchizedek. If you have a Bible with you, you can look at these verses and see that I'm not making this stuff up. This is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a perfect priest designated by God. Here's another example, uh, chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's from the order of Melchizedek, which makes him greater 
than the priests from the line of Levi. Now let's turn to chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. Take a look at this. Jesus is unlike any priest that's come before. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You see what's going on there? All right, they're going to die, so we need more and more and more of these priests because they just can't continue by themselves. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, listen to this, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus was greater in every way than all the priests combined who came before him, even Melchizedek. And if this was a normal week, we might be able to stop there, let you out early and say, now you can go and go, hmm, isn't that neat, right? But there's the so what question, right? So what? So what? Why does this matter in a world that is as broken as ours? I want to to invite you to write this down. Here's the so what. Is the Messiah greater than Melchizedek to you? Is the Messiah greater than Melchizedek to you? This is where the rubber meets the road. In the fullness of time, the word that was with God from the beginning stepped into our world to restore that which was broken. And he invites us to join him in that restoration. When Jesus walked the earth, Jesus the Messiah, he said, follow me, follow me. Last Sunday, those of us who were on the teen trip to Juarez, we worshiped alongside our brothers and sisters in Juarez. And right after church, as we were leaving, they were gathering the parents to come forward as they were about to tell them the news that we have to close the school. Karen was one of the ones giving the announcement. I said, Karen, how did it go? And she said, oh, it was hard. There's so many reasons why we started this school. And the parents, they get that. And most of them, if they had school at all, they grew up going to those schools. And it was hard. It was hard and heartbreaking. And also, I was talking to Sonia about this, and she said, you know what else was hard? It was the teachers. Telling the teachers. And she said, you know, they just, so many of them just broke down and they just wept. And they said, you know, we understand why you have to do this. And we could even see it coming because we, you know, you guys kept us informed about how things are going. But they wept because they said, we've never had a job like this. Where instead of 60 kids in the morning and another 60 kids in the afternoon, we were able to invest in this small group of kids and we could tell them about Jesus. And you guys cared about us as people and on and on and on. You know, 
this, this hit me actually just this morning. I decided to run the numbers. If we, as a church family, just this little church family that we have, Emmanuel Covenant Church, if we merely responded as Abram responded to Melchizedek and all of us tithe, running some very conservative numbers, we could fully fund not only all the ministry for a year here, all the things we're doing, including our gifts that we give to the covenant and all these other things, we could also fully fund that school. Do you see how this is rubber meets the road stuff? If we looked at Jesus the way people looked at Melchizedek and we just treated him like that, just in that one area, and that's not talking about our whole lives, right? Look at the practical difference that could make. Why do I get really excited about a seemingly obscure passage from Genesis after spending a week in Juarez? Because this passage invites us to respond to some really good news. Let's go back to a passage we already looked at. At this time, uh, let me highlight something you may have missed the first time through. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Look at this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience to what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. How good news is that? And look at this. To all who what? What does it say? To who? He becomes the savior to all who receive him as their Lord. And when we receive him as our Lord, good things happen in our lives and in lives all around the world. The book of Hebrews builds towards the response. The, he, the author of Hebrews, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is so brilliant. After making this airtight case that there's none like the Messiah, we're invited to respond to that with our whole lives, with our whole lives. As the case builds in particular, reminded in Hebrews chapter 11 of this great cloud of witnesses who's gone before us. We don't have time to read that whole passage, but at the end it says this, as Hebrews 11 comes to a close and then transitions into Hebrews 12.1, all these, all these witnesses, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Author of Hebrews says, if you want a faith that will endure, cast aside every weight, repent from sinful entanglements and fix your eyes on who? On Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Brings us to verse 2 in chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This isn't the first time that the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the founder and perfecter. In fact, it's almost like, oh, I see the echo now. It, he introduces that theme way back in chapter 2 of Hebrews. Way back in 2.10. Let's put this one up on the screen. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through their suffering. The author of Hebrews instructs us to keep our eyes on Jesus throughout this entire letter. Keep our eyes on the one who's greater than the angels. 
Keep her eyes on the one who's greater than Moses and even greater than Melchizedek the Marvelous. I want to show you something. Let's go back to Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Take a look at this. This is a shortened version bringing out a couple key things to emphasize. It says, let us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And that brings us to our next talk point on your, on your notes. We can endure the race that was set before us if we remember the joy, the joy that was set before him. We never want to forget that a cross is something you endure. A cross isn't something that you have to love. Call it for what it is. You know, when you're picked up to, when you're called to take up your cross, you don't want to celebrate the cross itself. There should be a greater joy that you're carrying that cross for. Does that make sense? That's how it was with Jesus. And in Jesus' case, the joy set before him The joy set before Jesus was you. The one who is greater than angels. The one who is greater than Moses. The one who is greater than any priest who ever lived. The joy set before him as he took up a cross was you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's the message that I responded to as an 18-year-old. When the song leader up in front was singing a song, and the words are really simple. It's worth it all to me. It's worth it all to me. It's worth it all to me. It's worth it all. And then the song leader changed those lyrics, and he said, I want you guys to just imagine Jesus up on the cross, and he's looking down right at you, and he's saying, it's worth it, child, to me. It's worth it, child, to me. It's worth it, child, to me. It's worth it all. If Jesus is who he was, how, how can we neglect so great a salvation? How can we cling to forbidden fruit that never satisfies anyway? How can we respond with anything less than, here's my whole life, God, all of it? The one who is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Melchizedek, he is mighty to save. Save us from ourselves. Save us from the lies of the serpent. And he invites us to join him in his work. There was something else that hit me this morning, so much so that all I did was I quick penciled it in after I hit print. And that is this. Often I've spoken before about how, man, how do we make church more like camp, right? Where we experience Christian community the way it was meant to live. Here's the BFO of the Blind Fashion obviously I had today. We're all on a short-term mission trip, aren't we? Or we should be. The older I get, the faster life goes. And you realize you only have so much time and you have no idea how much time you've got. What if we began to look at life as a short-term mission trip where we have been commissioned by the one who's greater than all those? And in addition to saying, how do we do community really, really well, like they do at a camp that's working well, how do we also then do this part of doing our mission? Wherever we are, whether it's in Juarez, whether it's in the Twin Cities, whether it's at your house, at your workplace, what if we looked at that, life like that? And as he leads us through the trials of a mission trip, he's ultimately leading us home 
to a place that Hebrews describes as perfect rest. How many of you would love some perfect rest? Doesn't that sound good? And as Rhonda sent out one of her memes, you know, aren't we all, isn't, isn't our faith ultimately about walking, how does it, how does it go, like walking people home, right? We're just walking each other home. Isn't that beautiful? Well, about a week before our trip, about a week before our trip, our friends at Manual Children's Home, they said, hey, can you share? Can you be the one to speak on Sunday? And I hate that question because, you know, I feel like, what do I have to share with them? And as I prayed, before I had done this message, I felt like I was supposed to say, Melchizedek. I'm like, what? Come on, it's be hard enough to turn this to not Bible trivia for these guys, but how do I? Can this preach in Juarez? That the joy set before him is you? To people whose lives are just marked by poverty and an inability to be able to offer your kids food and clothing and medical care? to know that there is a God who stepped into our world and he walked hot and dusty streets and he experienced hunger and he experienced thirst and he experienced betrayal and he did this and the joy set before him was us. And as I was able to share that, I was locking eyes with people because how many of you know that the word of God, when it's not reduced to Bible trivia, the word of God does not just apply to one culture. It does not just apply to one gender. It applies to all of us, right? And there was even another layer that I was able to share specifically with some of the workers at the home because you talk about enduring. You talk about the cloud of witnesses. Those people leading at that home have been through so much and there's so much more yet to come. But on the weariness that they had and the heaviness and the weight of all this that is on their faces, when you get them talking about the kids, there's a sparkle that comes to their eyes because the joy set before them as they endure in the cross is who? It's those kids. And when I was able to share that with the families, the joy set before them is you. That's a beautiful thing too. As we live out this short-term mission trip experience, everywhere we go, we have an opportunity not just to experience the wonder and the joy of walking with God. We get to embody and be his, his hands and his feet to others. And that's a beautiful thing too. This passage, Genesis 14, invites us all into all of this, into what God is doing in Juarez and Minnesota and anywhere he calls you to go. And this invitation, this invitation to receive Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord, it's a gift. It's a gift. A gift that must be received. So I want to give you that opportunity here before the worship band comes up and seals this time with a song. So as they get into the place, let me, let me pray this over us. Father, 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 those mission trips when they're done right, are so rewarding. We get to experience community with other people. We get to, to experience what it's like to, to try to do everything, you know, whatever we do in word and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get a chance to watch you work in and through us. We get a chance to partner with others who are doing the same. 
and everyone gets blessed. Those who are sent, those who receive. Lord, may you bless us by opening our eyes to see and experience life as a short-term mission trip. So, Father, I pray right here, right now, that all of us would yield our full selves to you. That we would recognize we need a priest, one who is able to atone for our sins. We're so thankful that you did that for us, that you were our priest, our Savior. And, Lord, we also surrender to you as King, as Lord. Help us to trust you, Father, in all things, in all things. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.